Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today on the pod, we're talking about parks. And no, not national parks, but city parks. The kind you probably visit on a regular basis if you're lucky enough to have one within walking distance of your home. Our guest today is Eileen Thompson, Vice President of Strategy and Engagement at the Trust for Public Land. Eileen is leaving her position at the Trust soon to head up the brand new Foundation for America's Public Lands. The Foundation for America's Public Lands was created by Congress during the Trump administration to partner with the Bureau of Land Management to better manage our public lands, but the Trump administration never formally set it up. Until Interior Secretary Deb Holland formally launched the organization last year, the BLM was the only major federal land management agency without an affiliated foundation. We're excited to see what Eileen and the foundation are able to accomplish, and we'll be sure to keep you all informed as things move along. In other news, a federal appeals court has derailed a plan to send billions of gallons of crude oil from Utah through Colorado. And yes, that was a train joke. As a dad, I am legally obligated to make train puns. The proposed Uinta Basin Railway would connect oil fields in Utah with the National Rail Network directing trains full of crude through Colorado mountains. The federal government approved this plan back in 2021 after a three-year environmental review, but Eagle County, Colorado, and several environmental groups sued, saying that environmental analysis was inadequate and that it failed to look at all of the risks that trains pose to the Colorado River. A judge agreed and ordered the feds to redo that environmental review. The project, therefore, is on hold for now. It probably will come back in some shape or form in the future, but it is sure to face strong opposition if or when that happens. Today we have Eileen Thompson, Vice President of Strategy and Engagement at the Trust for Public Land, with us to discuss a new report called The Power of Parks to Promote Health. Eileen, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, it's a real pleasure. So let's start off with um, the obvious question. Why did the Trust for Public Land put together this report and what was the main finding? Well, you know, one thing that um, as we were putting together this report, uh, you know, we believe deeply in the connect and connecting people to the outdoors And one of the ways that we try to do that is to really understand what does it take to really connect people to the outdoors. So we do this annual survey of park systems. We look at 100 of the most populous cities in the United States, and we really examine park systems that are stepping up to really deliver uh, all the values that parks bring to people in new and surprising ways. How do parks make people healthier? How are they, um, how are they doing this? And so we asked uh, these parks leaders to share what are their most effective strategies and how are they improving physical or mental health? And you know, a lot of that was the usual things that we all grew up with. We knew that park systems and park recreation, parks and recreation departments, they have camps and league sports, maybe fitness classes. Um, you know, so that wasn't that surprising, right? That's fairly common. But what we found this year is that there's a lot more of these agencies that are starting to partner with programs like Generation Wild in Colorado that introduces young people to the outdoors through weekend outings. Um, or, you know, they're funding uh, programs like Neighbor Spaces 
um, in El Paso uh, County Community Garden in Chicago. And those provide this really important lifeline to seniors um, during the pandemic who weren't able to get outside, but it, it created these opportunities for them to get out. So we're finding that these institutions are becoming really innovative and in how they are using parks to get people outside and get them healthier. Um, and the second thing we found was that a lot of healthcare institutions like hospitals, public health agencies, even insurance companies, um, they're starting to see that they have an important role to play in um, promoting health vis-a-vis -vis parks. And so of the 26 cities we surveyed in this report, we found that these healthcare institutions are funding, staffing, or even referring patients to these types of health programs that parks are offering to improve their health of the community and improve indiv individual patient health. That is so cool. So it sounds like there's sort of a growing awareness that parks are actually a tool for health. Um, and we're going to return to that concept here in a second. But I want to just bring in another report that you guys do that was referenced in this report, which is the Park Score Report. Can you tell us about the Park Score Report and how it sort of um, played into this uh, Power of Parks to Promote Health report? Yes, yes, absolutely. So, you know, Trust for Public Land has been uh, running a sort of national study for about 12 years that we call Park Score. And the Park Score Index ranks park systems across the country. We look at the 100 most populous U.S. cities and we use a ranking system to help us understand what cities have the best park systems in the country. And um, it, it's it's built off of a, a very large database of about 14,000 communities where we're able to look and determine all of those attributes that cities have, the number of parks, um, the kind of parks, how close proximity parks are, sort of a number of factors to help us be able to determine and do this ranking. Um, we use the park score data to determine where new parks are needed and specifically as well, which park improvements can help deliver even greater impact um, to those communities. And so um, this park score information has been incredibly helpful. You know, so so this year, you know, park score found that Washington, D.C. is the nation's best city for park access. St. Paul uh, in Minnesota came in second and Minneapolis came in third. And so, you know, you can go to tpl.org and find like where your city lives in those rankings. Um, and and it's, it's really helpful, but, but what we love out of the park score uh, index and the rankings is that it really starts to point at some of the things that park systems are doing across the country to improve park access for their communities. Um, and so we, we, um, we've added things like equity. So looking at parts of cities that have very little access, some parts of communities, uh, some parts of cities have greater park access. And so we're able to use this data to really pinpoint where um, city leaders and funding for new parks really needs to go. So we, we, um, we love doing this and we work in close partnership with parks practitioners and parks and rec departments to gather this data. I want to ask about this metric, the idea that everyone should live within a 10-minute walk to a park. Why that number? Why that distance? What difference does that make in folks' lives 10 versus 15 or 20 minutes? Yeah, that's such a great question. So, you know, the, the Trust for Public Land uses the 10-minute walk is sort of 
our bar to indicate whether or not um, a community has access to the parks that they need. We find that 10 minutes is, uh, it's roughly half a mile. And for most able-bodied people, it's the um, uh, sort of average distance and time people are willing to walk to reach a destination like a park. Um, if, you know, if, if something's too far, if a park's too far away, um, they may not be willing to walk there. Um, and then you go back to, you know, what the, you know, 30 minutes of exercise a day, you get a 10 minute walk to a park, you spend some time there, you walk back, you're sort of hitting like really good health metrics there. So, um, so we have used that as the barometer. And what's really cool is that we're able to take um, that 10 minute walk and we can drill it down to the city block. And so we're able to use GIS mapping to really know where all existing parks currently are and then be able to map to the city block how someone could move from one part uh, of a community to another. And, and it gives us really robust data to be able to help city leaders understand where there might need to be new um, access, like more sidewalks, um, where there might be like a big highway blocking the way. <laughs> and, and, and you start to see these really innovative things where there's tunnels or bridges or, you know, should there be a park in a different, in, in a location because there's some, some access blocks. So, um, you know, we look at that and, and what drives Trust for Public Land is we think about um, the U.S. population, one quarter of the U.S. population does not have a park within a 10 minute walk. And that's nearly 100 million people. That's 28 million kids. And, and we're really focused on how we can create that closer to home access for them when they move forward. So in this new report, you actually attempted to quantify the health benefits of parks. Can you share some of the numbers that your team came up with that show how parks make people healthier? Sure. So, so this, this is the uh, holy grail in many respects, right? So it's um, those of us in this, that who've been working in this space for a long time, we just know you feel better when you go outside, <laughs> you know, you, you step away from your desk, you go for that walk. People during the pandemic found parks, this, this important respite when they couldn't have that social interaction. Um, and, and what's great about park score this year is we really focused on where are those real proof points um, for how parks make us healthier. What we found in our top um, top cities, our top 25 cities, that these cities had 14% uh, less poor mental health issues, and they also had almost 21% less physical inactivity in their communities. And so what this means is sort of the higher a city ranks in their park score index, um, the the healthier uh, from a physical and a mental health standpoint they tend to be. Um, and, and those are those relationships that we find pretty important. Um, we know intrinsically these things are true and data like this starts to help us make the case even more for more investment in these areas with health communities and policymakers. You mentioned programs that had started up during the pandemic that cities were running in their parks. Did COVID change the way America and America's cities in particular think about parks and the outdoors? I, I'll say we we certainly saw that. You know, I, I think there's a few trends that we have seen come up since uh, the pandemic. Um, the one safe place people could go was outside. <laughs> um, we've also seen um, since that time that people, the, the social connection that folks would have when they would go out to a park, you see your neighbor's. Um, they would get outside and get um, that exercise, that fresh air, that connection to the physical and mental health 
that um, we've been able to see in uh, in a lot of our parks around the country. Um, I would also say, you know, one of the things that we're paying close attention to and is why park score is really important is the actual access, like having enough parks and good quality parks that give people an experience that they can go and get the values from those parks. And so um, we're, some places have a lot of foot traffic <laughs> going to them, you know, and, and, um, and so that's a good thing, but we also need to make sure that there's enough access to more parks in places where we really need them. And we've started to find that that disparity is, is an area for us really to pay attention to. Some cities, some locations have wonderful parks in certain parts of the city and they, um, and there's fewer parks and fewer quality parks in other parts of cities. Uh, as you just mentioned, and as your report indicates, it's not enough to just build a park and hope people will go there. Um, what are some of the ways that you guys identified to make parks more welcoming and um, sort of activate these parks more? Yeah, so what, you're you're exactly right. Just, you know, that old adage, build it and they will come, um, isn't necessarily true. Um, I've personally been in some communities where um, you walk up and it's a big piece of grassy field and there's nothing to do. You, you can't, it might be uneven ground. Um, the, the more elderly people are unable to walk on that kind of ground. There's no uh, equipment or activities that children are able to use while they're there. Um, and so that quality of the park is really important. And, um, and so what we found is that if we work with the surrounding community around that park to help them develop a vision for how they really want to use that space, they will be able to see themselves in that space. They'll be able to bring in their culture. They will be able to bring in the activities and the preferences that they want to have in the way they recreate. And they will, if, if, we do, if we approach it that way, they're more likely to visit and participate in the life of the park. And so from, you know, if you think about someone's um, sort of lifespan and the way that they sort of operate in their day-to-day -day lives, that means there's a real uh, benefit to them to go to that space. They're getting outside, they're taking that 10 minute walk, they're enjoying themselves and being active and outside. Um, and all of these things contribute to a, a much, you know, much, much stronger, healthier outcomes. Um, and so this community engagement process has been such a deep part of our work. Um, you know, the, the old days of going and sort of just deciding we're going to cookie cutter put, you know, put a park in place and, and create it in a, in, in a cookie cutter kind of way, we found is um, sometimes a barrier because different communities like to engage outside in many different ways. And so we've um, we've really sort of put forward some thought leadership around that too um, in a re recent report we put out called the Common Ground Framework. And it examines several communities around the country who are exploring how to engage communities in the design of their parks and what it takes to be able to drive those conversations, engage those communities. And we found when you do that, you end up with a much better outcome um, for the communities and for their, for their long-term health. I want to ask about that a little more. One of the most important things I think this report does is highlight that gap between higher income and lower income neighborhoods and the gap in just about every city when it comes to black and Hispanic Latinx neighborhoods. Uh, what are some, are there any best practices so far of cities that are turning that around and how does that 
that planning process work to make sure that new parks are meeting the needs of each individual community? Sure. I, I, um, I, I just want to underscore what, what you said here, like this disparity is very real. And, you know, from trust for public land standpoint, this is a huge area to focus on in the parks, in the park space. And so, um, for instance, you, you spoke to the disparities. I just want to like underscore that with, you know, we have examined of all the cities that we, we examine for park score and in our park serve database, what we found is that communities of color have 43% less park acreage per person than majority white neighborhoods. And we've also found that communities in low income areas have 42% less park space than more affluent neighborhoods. And, and that's the starting point. That's sort of where, where we're beginning. And so um, and then you get into the next issue of um, the quality of the park um, or how that park has been designed to support those communities. And so um, that's the landscape that I, I um, you know, the, that as we go in and work with communities, we, we're recognizing that and saying, okay, first, let's make sure there's enough space and that where those future investments are coming, we're putting them there. Um, there's a community that uh, Trust for Public Land worked in called Wenatchee. It's in Wenatchee, Washington. And um, it's a primarily, a, it's a Hispanic uh, community, um, a big apple grower, apple, apple growing community. and they had um, uh, our, our team went in there and was working with them. They were invited in to say, hey, we, we'd like to sort of improve our park space. And they have, you know, your traditional thing that we see in a lot of parks, the pavilion with picnic tables kind of under the pavilion to block you from the sun. But there wasn't a lot else out there. And um, this community shared, you know, hey, we we like to to dance and we like to sing and we gather and we actually like to use that pavilion space, but these tables are in the way, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And so it, it was like a light bulb moment where when you go in and think, oh, okay, some people want to go and sit at this picnic table under this, but the way that different communities, um, especially when you're thinking about from an equity standpoint, isn't, isn't one in the same. And so by having those conversations, we're able to, we're able to figure that out. And so it's, it, you know, to us, it's, it's a sort of a hallmark of how, as we think about solving these equity gaps in parks, is really starting with what does the community most, what does the community most need and want, making sure they have a seat at the table and the design and envisioning that they um, can contribute to, to to get the parks they need. Often the creation of a new park or hike or bike trail can drive up housing prices in the neighborhood. Um, is there a way to expand access to parks and build new parks in these um, underserved communities that won't accidentally incite gentrification? Yeah, you know, this is this is a, an issue, I think, especially as we've seen just nationally over the last couple of years since the pandemic, the cost of housing has um, has just really uh, gone up in many, many major cities around the country um, where we we believe is every neighborhood needs safe and welcoming parks where children can play and be physically active, where your elderly can walk safely and have good spaces to rest when they need to. And so that's sort of baseline. Um, that's what every community needs. And so we, we're actually going in and working across the country with city leaders to think about parks in the context 
of how they're considering larger plans that includes these uh, a variety of concerns like the gentrification, housing preservation, tenant protection, and other strategies that really help them ensure that parks and open spaces are there to benefit everyone and that they actually have them. Um, and so right now, part of that is because there's a lack of access to quality parks, sometimes those become high value um, and can contribute to, to some of the challenges that communities across the country are facing. Um, what we found, you know, in some communities where we're going, um, we're, we're working, is that everyone needs to be at the table, city leaders, the members of the community, as I, I talked about a little earlier, um, housing advocates, um, other experts that are able to sort of understand the dynamics in each community. Um, and so, so having all of the, the players at the table starts to understand what some of those challenges are and how we can really support communities as, as um, they start to come up with solutions. Let's talk about money because obviously all of this access uh, requires someone to pay for it. TPL was front and center over the fight to first permanently authorize and then fully fund the Land and Water Conservation Fund. That was back in, in 2019 that all of that finally was, was completed. So we're now several years in. How has LWCF and that permanent funding changed the landscape for new parks and cities? Yeah, you know, the wonderful thing about the Land and Water Conservation Fund or LWCF is that it is this longstanding federal program that directs fees from oil and gas drilling to investments in parks and open space. And so basically it's not taxpayer dollars. Um, th these are the taxes on the drilling that is happening um, from the oil and gas industry. And so because of this, we are able to get more parks and open space investments and these benefit everyone. Um, and so, you know, we continue to see this as an invaluable program. Uh, we want to help communities secure, identify, elevate projects that qualify for LWCF dollars, secure those dollars and then put them in the places that um, they really need them. And so, part, you know, part of this, you know, as we look at our work through the lens of equity, is also to make sure that the communities that really need more, more access to park spaces, that they're able to um, apply for these dollars and fund for them so that they can have access to all the things that might be, um, uh, that have had longstanding investments too. So um, it remains this incredible program for us. And, and, I, and, and in particular, it doesn't cost taxpayers anything and it benefits everyone. Awesome. So one other thing I want to touch on that you guys um, mentioned in your Power of Parks to Promote Health report is um, that parks can also combat heat and air pollution. And I just want to make sure we we touch on that note before we close out here. So, um, yeah. So one of the things that we have found is that parks, you know, within a mile radius of, you know, if you're within a mile radius of a park, you can actually, the temperatures start to lower. So you can find, you know, Closer to the park you are, it could be up to 10 degrees lower temperatures to a park. The trees, the shade, these are all wonderful benefits that come when you have a park nearby. And, and I think particularly as we look at climate change and rising temperatures, um, that's pretty important. Um, the second is, uh, the, you know, uh, stormwater runoff and flooding. Um, many of our parks uh, are also taking into account heat 
from you know high, higher temperatures and using uh, tree canopy and and um, and those types of things to lower the heat, but also to help manage stormwater. And so one of our parks in Atlanta, for instance, uh, Cook Park, it's um, it's you know you can see the the Falcon Stadium right there from the park, but it was an area that historically flooded, and um, and so it had the risk of starting to displace. Uh, people who lived in that community and this park was created recognizing hey it's all it it's an amazing space for the community and it can actually help manage the stormwater that's that's moving through that community and protect these these uh the neighborhood from flooding and so there's there's ways where you look at the in many ways uh, a park can be on the surface it's on the top it's a great space but it's also doing double duty on managing things like flooding and um, stormwater runoff and reducing heat in the in the communities which are pretty important as we start to think about how to how to support communities with climate change and its impacts. It's not just a gathering space; it is nature space, even if it's a created one. Absolutely, absolutely. Last question for you, then: If you are a mayor or a city council member or a parks director, and you're listening to this, what is the one thing you'd hope they take away from this report? Well, I I think. You know, there's a lot here, and I would say, you know, just just get yourself educated. Um, we all of these resources I've talked about, they're they're available um, for anyone in any community to go in. I'm in Grand Junction, Colorado. You can go into Park Serve. You can pull. You can find your community, plug it in there, and it will produce a map for you. So you start to understand, huh? This is where we have park access within a 10 minute walk. Here's where we don't. But it's this knowledge that's going to help everyone who's trying to solve for these things and create great communities for people to live in. These resources are there for you. Trust for Public Land is here to help. There are many other great organizations kind of working in this space. And um, data is powerful to be able to go and make the case to get more funding. And there's a lot of funding. And, and the last thing I would say is just pay attention to what's moving um, through at the federal level. There's more funding than ever before right now that can help uh, fund projects like this. Um, one in particular is we're paying attention to the Living Schoolyards Bill. We're taking schoolyards that are often hot asphalt, chain link fences around them. Um, but these are excellent candidates to become parks and they help us close that park equity gap. And so there's a, a bill called the Living Schoolyards Bill right now that Senator Heinrich has introduced. Um, and if we can go in and transform these blank, hot asphalt focused schoolyards uh, around the country, we could put 80 million people within a 10 minute walk of a park and we can help solve that problem um, for 20, you know, for, for that, for those people who don't currently have a park. There's things like the living schoolyards bill that are moving through the federal level all the time that cities can use to help pay for these projects. And so we're here to help um, anyway, anyway, uh, any, and, and um, any community that's interested in digging in. So thank you. Awesome. Well, we'll leave it there. Eileen Thompson, Vice President of Strategy and Engagement at the Trust for Public Land. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Have a great day.
Well, the Uinta Basin Railway decision that we talked about at the top of the show is certainly great news, but there is even more good news to include here. Last week, another federal court dropped Utah's lawsuit against Grand Staircase Escalante and Bears Ears National Monuments. Judge David Nuffer ruled that since Congress granted the president the authority to designate national monuments on public lands, he said, quote, Congress knows how to restrict statutory presidential power. That is, of course, good news for the Antiquities Act, which was passed by Congress in 1906, and give presidents the power to create national monuments. It's been used for more than 100 years, starting with Teddy Roosevelt. This ruling, of course, is also consistent with previous cases where plaintiffs tried to limit the president's ability to designate national monuments. All of those cases have failed in the past. This is just one more on that long pile of case law establishing that the Antiquities Act does, in fact, say exactly what Congress intended it to say. Check out our blog post about the Antiquities Act if you want to dive into more of that past. We will drop that link into the show notes. Well, that's all for today. If you've got feedback or questions for us, you can email podcast at westernpriorities.org. You can also reach out to us on social media. We're on Twitter, a.k.a. X, as well as Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. And please leave us a review wherever you're listening right now. And really go check out those TikToks. Kate and uh, Sterling are doing a great job on those. Thanks again to the Trust for Public Land for their great work on parks. Good luck to Eileen Thompson in her new role at the Foundation for America's Public Lands. And thank you for listening to The Landscape. <laughs>